Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. He was the greatest alive, and he knew it too. He even once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. You know who I'm talking about. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. I'm the resurrected, the savior of the whole game. Every day I'm in the newspapers, you get tired of reading about me. I'm a big man. I'm handsome, I'm fat, I'm pretty, and can't possibly be beat. Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Muhammad Ali, one of the most famous athletes of the 20th century, the subject of countless documentaries, movies, and biographies. It's hard to determine just what is left to learn about the icon. Well, in a new documentary, filmmaker Ken Burns aims to give the most comprehensive look at Ali's life to date, with footage even his family has never seen. It debuts this Sunday on PBS. And joining me now is documentarian Ken Burns. Ken, welcome back to Reset. Thank you, Sasha. It's great to be with you. Uh, I have to say right off from the bat that this is co-directed by Sarah Burns, my oldest daughter, and her husband, David McMahon. We've collaborated on a number of things, including the Central Park Five and Jackie Robinson, and this is right in our our wheelhouse. But if I say we, it's not a pretentious royal we, but in fact the collaborative we that this glorious medium uh, insists we have. Well, let's talk about Muhammad Ali. Like I said, he is someone that we're all familiar with, uh, both his professional and private life. He's a sports and pop culture titan, and there are lots of other films that were made about him. So what is there left to say, Ken? Why did you choose him as a subject? You know, uh, you're absolutely right, Sasha. There are lots and lots of documentaries, and some of them are among the finest documentaries ever made. Most of those focus on a single fight or a series of fights or a couple years in his life. And Sarah, Dave, and I were interested in a in a sort of a broad arc of the whole biography from his uh, birth and boyhood in segregated Jim Crow, Louisville, Kentucky, to his death uh, from Parkinson's just outside of Phoenix not that long ago, five years ago, 2016. And we were interested in the fights, of course, that's his occupation and the collected fights, the most important ones, look like the collected works of William Shakespeare when you get down to the drama of it all. But we're also interested in that personal life. We're interested in his journey, uh, his spiritual journey. This is a kind of amazing story of a of a hero, and it's a growth of and development of that hero. And so I think what we see is too often there's a kind of mention of the Nation of Islam and not a deep dive into it, and a mention of his faith and not an understanding of its, you know, constantly transforming, enlarging thing. And, and you know, we also were interested in the warts and all. You know, this is a man who is a larger-than-life human being, and he has unbelievable talents. He's the greatest athlete of the 20th century, maybe of all time. Uh, but he's also got huge outsized flaws as well, which we were wanting to explore and yeah. understand him. And we'll get into to that. You know, can I think of Muhammad Ali, memories go back to my childhood. I grew up 
a huge fan of of boxing, just like my father. Uh, I've read two biographies on him, uh, but I can actually say that less than an hour into watching your documentary, I learned things that I did not know about him. <laughs> his relationship you know, with his parents is is one thing that uh, I I thought uh, you explored very well. Is that what you set out to do? Yes, that's been our 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 sort of intention in almost all the films that we've done to do a deep dive, and we're so privileged to be able to work with public broadcasting, which permits us to spend seven years working on a project from the time we say yes. So it permits us to find hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and him talking, uh, often that goes against the kind of conventional wisdom about him so that there's a sense that at this period he was all the braggadocio and and the and the and the poetry spouting i'm so fast man i can run through a hurricane and don't get wet when george fulman meets me he'll pay his debt i can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree wait till you see muhammad ali and at the same time, during the same period, you find extraordinary wisdom and thoughtfulness and, and a kind of interiorness to him that we wanted to extend to his whole life. What was all, all, what were all of the corners? And Muhammad Ali intersects with all the major themes of the last half of the 20th century, the role of sports in society, the role of the black athlete, definitions of black manhood and black masculinity, civil rights not as a one thing but as a fluid dynamic thing, race, of course, politics, war, sex, faith, religion, Islam. I mean, there's almost nothing that he wasn't connected to that we aren't also still talking about and still thinking about to this day, and I'm, I'm I'm very very interested in in all of that. And at the end, I think what emerges is a portrait of freedom. It is really difficult for a black person in the United States of America to escape the specific gravity of their mistreatment since 1619. Mm -hmm. This is a story of courage, not just in the ring. This is a very difficult sport. Um, but also his courage, say, uh, in opposing the war in Vietnam and sacrificing as a result three and a half years at the peak of his athletic prowess. And then it's about love, which is a complicated word that most people don't want to deal with. But when you die, as he did, the most beloved man on the planet, You've got to explore that. You've got to try to come to terms with what was it about him? What was it that your father saw, that you saw? What was it that I saw growing up? I mean, I remember my dad telling me about the 60 Olympics and, and the gold medal um, when I was seven. And then here was this guy, as Jim McKay, a very young Jim McKay says in the footage we found, with the most Roman name of all is from Louisville, Kentucky, Cassius Marcellus Clay mm -hmm. Jr., and so it's, it's, um, it's amazing. You know, towards the very end of the film, Howard Bryant, great writer, we cut away from his last statement about Ali near the very end of the film to a demonstration. We consciously do not show you what kind of demonstration is or what's it about on the Brooklyn Bridge. And we're drifting, zooming in slowly to a young black woman who's wearing a black T-shirt with white letters. And all that it says is Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. For her, the preparation she needed for that demonstration were these two words uh, that symbolize that freedom, that courage, and that love. You started working on this film seven years ago when Muhammad Ali was still alive. Did you ever get to talk to him about the project? 
Uh, no. Uh, by that time, he was really isolated. The effects of the Parkinson's had really kind of obvious. He hadn't spoken I see. in public for a long time. But you had met him before, right? I had met him. I, uh, Sarah and Dave didn't. I, I, you know, Sasha, I had an amazing experience. And uh, I'm not embarrassed by it. It's just I don't have a kind of rational explanation. And maybe it goes back to the the third theme about love. I was, I had a cold. I was trying to raise money, as we're always doing in public broadcasting. And I was in Los Angeles, and I'd gone into a coffee shop past the breakfast rush and before the noon crowd to get a cup of tea to go. And I'm standing at the corner waiting. And as I turn around, I look and Muhammad Ali has slid into a booth. I now cannot remember whether he was alone or not. But we locked eyes and we had a wordless conversation. I don't know any other way to describe it. I said, you're Muhammad Ali. And he said, yes. And I said, oh, I won't bother you. Thinking he might. And he said, you wouldn't be bothering me. And then I just paused a second and I said, this is like not out loud. This is just in my head and I'm hearing his voice in my head. We're 25, 30 feet away. And I said, I love you. And he said, I love you too. For two men, we never broke the gaze. There was no embarrassment at all. And I walked out and he followed me and I followed him and um, I was floating on air for the rest of the day. Wow. It was just, and I don't have to, I didn't obviously didn't need an autograph. I didn't need to shake his hand. Um, it was just a stunning experience. And I think, I don't think that's as a goal of the film. This is my own private experience. Sarah and Dave are the equal filmmakers. They're in fact the writers of the script. So it's as much theirs, if not more, their film. But I think that in some way for me, getting a sense of who he was as a man, it's why we open the film with a scene that used to be safely and perfectly working deep into our third of four episodes. And we moved it to the beginning because it shows a kind of humanness to him. He's stealing cornflakes from his oldest child, Miriam, in a diner. You want some breakfast? I want some can I have some of your cornflakes? Oh, I don't want none. I won't take none. I won't take none. I won't eat none if you don't want to. Oh, look at that pretty horse. And it's just a way of saying, you know, this is, it's going to be about boxing. It's going to be about the nation of Islam. It's going to be about Vietnam. It's going to be about loud rumble, young man rumble, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. It's mm-hmm. going to be about all of that. But there's going to be an interiorness to this that is intimate and personal. He is a larger than life figure. He is a kind of superhero, if you will. And, and yet he's also a human being. And that's what we were struggling always to maintain that balance, to calibrate the scenes, the respiration of scenes, the inhalation, the exhalation as we were editing the film. And it's so great that we had the time to do it that allowed us yeah. to find the material and then and then be able to share it. I love the fact I was just with Rashida yesterday in, in New York. That's his, one of the daughters we interviewed. And she's was just talking about how she cried when she saw him holding her as a little baby saying, don't you know your daddy is the baddest man on earth? You know, (laughs) she'd never seen that her whole life. And um, to be able, I mean, that's the best review you could possibly get. Right. right? That's incredible. That is filmmaker Ken Burns. His new four-part documentary, Muhammad Ali, debuts on PBS. You know, you touched on this, but I want to go back. Shortly after becoming heavyweight champion of the world, he denounced his birth name, Cassius Clay, and he announced that he was Muhammad Ali once he had joined the Nation of Islam. How did you portray this in the film? 
Well, first of all, we wanted to get the chronology right. He'd been attracted to the Nation of Islam and its teachings for a while. He'd played a record over and over again as a teenager that was recorded, in fact, by a man who we now know as Louis Farrakhan. But uh, it was a white man's heaven as a black man's hell. And it was a record, an LP that played. And he was really drawn to the teachings. And he'd bumped into a minister on the streets of Miami where he was training for his fights. And he was beginning to attend meetings. It, it became enough of a controversy um, as he developed a friendship with their most charismatic minister, uh, Malcolm X, that um, Malcolm had to sort of leave in the week leading up to the fight with Liston and then come back on the eve of the fight. They were very close friends, and, and uh, Malcolm X was a mentor. Uh, but Elijah Muhammad, fearing the kind of growing popularity of Malcolm X, his focus on politics, and rather than separation and kind of do for self and build in community and the business model that, that was working and successfully, um, he had expelled Malcolm X and asked uh, Cassius Clay to do the same. Mm-hmm. Part of the reward for that was bestowing him with a name. But you have to think about this guy who grows up. His father was an angry, angry, bitter person. And he had watched the murder of Emmett Till. And Emmett Till was not that older than him. His brutal, mutilated body, it's just unbearable. And every black person in America saw the photographs in Jet Magazine and a lot of other people did too. And it gave a kind of spark to a civil rights movement. But you could understand the kind of certainty and 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 safety and security that the Nation of Islam, which is just a sect and, and bears little resemblance to Islam itself, mainstream Islam, yeah. but was enough of, a, of a, a thing that he could latch onto it. And then, and then that's the beginning. It's not a fixed, as I said, journey. It's a, it's a completely fluid and dynamic one. So I, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said, you know, this is a story of courage, not just in the ring. Arguably, Ali's biggest fights happened outside of the ring, right? He refused to serve in the Vietnam War, as you brought up. He was nearly sent to jail for it. Can you talk a bit more about the gravity of that huge decision? Because I believe it was largely for religious reasons, right? Yeah, I think that when a black man in America takes a stand that is, in this case, entirely faith-based, it's really hard for the system to see it. They see it in a political, a kind of binary on and off way so that this is just giving the middle finger to the United States government and the war and the sacrifices of other people. He's he's already got two strikes against him, right? He's loud. He's not behaving the way an athlete should behave. He's bragging. And it's certainly not the way a black athlete at that time should behave. Strike one. And he's joined the Nation of Islam and changed his name, which most people ignored and to, you know, to his fury uh, refused to acknowledge for the longest time. Strike two. And then, of course, he refuses induction purely on religious grounds. And it's interesting because people always talk about forgetting that he was so divisive. I'm not sure that he was divisive. I think we were divisive. We could not react uh, to him in any way that could acknowledge him, to hear him, to see him as a person who had a faith and, and believe the Supreme Court had already acknowledged that 
religious sects like Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable grounds, but you couldn't do that then. And then what happens is by treating him in a political fashion, they turned him into a political figure in order to survive, denied his livelihood, and he was the best paid boxer on earth. At the peak of his powers, he goes and starts lecturing on college campuses and all around the United States and and becomes what they said. He becomes this great spokesman, not just about the war, but about where black people were. And he'd Mm -hmm. already been saying, I'm beautiful, but he's also saying black is beautiful. And nobody had heard that. He was saying things that allowed oppressed people, not just in the United States, but all around the world, particularly with his conversion, to hear him as the voice of them. And and that's one of the reasons why billions, that's with a B, billions of people followed him and mourned him and felt he was the greatest. As you say, he was portrayed as a very complicated figure in this documentary. What would you say were some of his regrets? Oh, well, you know, there are three real obvious ones. Um, He was unfaithful, serially so, inexcusably so, and it caused great pain and anguish. And he realized that and understood late in life. He said, I fit my religion to fit my habits, and that was wrong. He treated his greatest rival, indeed many of his rivals, using, as Todd Boyd, the USC scholar, says in the film, using the language a white racist would use to describe another black man. I mean, it was just outrageous, particularly with regard to Joe Frazier, whom he had three epic fights with in the 70s. And also, I think the abandonment of Malcolm X at the end it mm-hmm. caused him a great deal of regret and he said you know he'd apologized to Joe Frazier at the end of his life and Joe was just so stung and hurt by the viciousness of the attacks that he didn't forgive him which is understandable on Joe's part but he also said that you know one of the greatest regrets if not the greatest regret of his life was excluding Malcolm X so there's it's just that's what I mean by it's a it's a fluid dynamic that we wanted to try to represent. You right. know, mistakes are not just mistakes, boom, done. It, it becomes, there's a fluidity with all of us if we have the grace, as he apparently did, to uh, recognize them and try to improve himself. At the very end, his daughter Rashida, who seems to carry the closest to his sort of sense of love, pinches her fingers together and he says, you know, boxing was just this much small. It's, he, it's what he grew into. And, um, you know, he could have been a, you know, could have chosen another profession. You can see early on taking on the boxing is an accident. His bike is stolen. He's looking around for a cop. And the closest cop he finds is teaching little kids, white but also black, how to box. And it's like, boom, ding, <laughs> Every, you know, the, the light bulb goes off yeah. and, and this is it. But maybe he could have become a simple carpenter. Well, in the last minute we have here, can I wonder what Muhammad Ali taught you? I think that I made a film about the Statue of Liberty and I had the great good this is this is 30 plus years ago, almost 40 years ago, and and interviewed James Baldwin and he said that we're all slaves. That is to say, we're slaves to money, we're slaves to hatred, we're slaves to hating Jews. We're sla- I mean he he reminded us of our obligation as human beings. And I think Muhammad Ali does the same thing. He asks us to see more. He's the most generous person I've ever come across. Just unbelievably generous, as 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 his wife both complained and smiled about, an ex-wife, his second one, Belinda, who changed her name to Kalia. He'd go out with $30,000 and come back with nothing, mm-hmm. having given it away, paid the mortgage, paid the education, you know, found the housing. What... 
and and he himself said, you know, and I and I I hope my own life has been improved or I can continue a journey of improvement that he helped ignite. His gravestone says, service to others is the price you pay for your room in heaven. And my sense is that Muhammad Ali has a large and capacious suite. That's filmmaker Ken Burns. His new four-part documentary, Muhammad Ali, debuts Sunday night at 7 on PBS and was also created with Sarah Burns and David McMahon. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Sasha. And that's today's Reset. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. If so, help us spread the word. Give this podcast a quick rating and review. It really makes a difference. Just one review will work the algorithms to help people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.